Let's go ahead and open up on a word of prayer this morning and we can get into our study in Daniel. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, we just thank you, Lord, for another opportunity that we have to come together as a body of believers and, and Lord, worship you, give you praise, uh, meet together in fellowship, and Lord, also to uh, hear your word. We just thank you for these opportunities that we have to study your word. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Daniel. Pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we look into these truths this morning, Lord. Help us to understand uh, your plan uh, for the future. We thank you, Lord, that you have laid these truths out for us, and we just pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding into them. Thank you, Lord, once again for this time. Just pray that it would be a time that glorifies and honors you. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 9 in our study again this morning. And we're taking our time through this rich prophetical material that we have here in Daniel 9. We've mentioned the details of the background here many times over the last few weeks, um, but I'll just go it over, over it a little bit briefly for a refresher. Daniel, in chapter 9, had been reading through the prophet Jeremiah concerning the prophecy of the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. It was nearing the end of that time as he's reading this, um, and so Daniel comes before God in humility and confession about the sins of Israel, just as God had said that the nation would do or should do. And he was praying in obedient response to God's word. And while he's praying, the angel Gabriel comes and pays him a visit. He had been sent by God as Daniel started his prayer to come and deliver an important message to Daniel, a message concerning the future of Israel. He tells him that what he has to reveal to him is of great importance, tells him to pay attention, tells him to heed his words, and then he begins to deliver this message. And that, in a nutshell, pretty much covers the first 23 verses of the chapter. And if you need more details, we can arrange to go back and get you the recordings uh, that we had before. And that brought us to the actual message that Gabriel has for Daniel, beginning in verse 24, which is what we started to look at last time. Now, in our last study, we got most of the way through the summary in verse 24. So let's read verse 24 again when Gabriel tells him, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And there are several things that we saw as we were looking at this verse. First, the first thing was that there was a definite time frame decreed by God here. Gabriel tells Daniel that 70 weeks have been decreed. Decreed is a word that means to cut off. In other words, this is an appointed period of time. God has set aside a specific time frame to accomplish certain things. And we didn't talk about how long a time this was, we're actually going to spend our time looking at that today, but it's clear that God had set aside or carved out a definitive period of time to get these certain things done. And this is important to note because there are many people that want to take this and say that it's not a definitive time period, it's a nebulous, up-to-your-own-interpretation time period instead, but we're going to see that that is not the case. And we'll see that time frame that God set forth in just a little bit. But the second thing that we saw in verse 24 was that this decree is for, as Gabriel tells Daniel, your people and your holy city. And we spent quite a bit of time in our last study developing this. But the short of it is that this is a decree for the future of Israel and is intended to reference the way in which God is going to work through the nation of Israel all the way up until when Messiah comes and establishes the kingdom that has been prophesied. What happens during this time will have an effect on the entire world, but it is specifically meant to establish certain things for God's chosen nation. What are those things? Well, that's revealed here as well, and we talked about these as well. There are six things that will be accomplished during this time period, and we can really break down these six into two two larger groups, and the first three go together to a certain extent, so we'll treat them as one. God will take care of the issue of sin. 
the nation of Israel had a sin problem. That should come as no surprise because the entire world has a sin problem. But for God's chosen nation, he made provision to deal with their sin. The first three decrees finish the transgression to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. It goes from the general to the specific, and then to the complete covering of sin. Sin in general will be no more. It will have no more authority. Individual sins will be dealt with. Any sin that... Uh, any sin will be taken care of. It will be judged immediately. And the guilt of sin will be covered. It will be paid for and not counted against anyone any longer. This will be a unique time. When will, this, when will this occur? We're talking about the time of the coming kingdom. During this time frame, during this 70-week period, God will be making the preparations, the provisions to bring all this about so that all will be ready for the time when Christ returns to set up his kingdom. Now, these things are not a work in progress in the sense that sin will decrease and decrease over time until the kingdom comes. Some believe that that's what's going to happen, what's going to be true. They believe that the world will continue to get better and better and better until that day. But that's not what Scripture indicates. And if you look out the window, you see that that is not happening. But no, God will be making all the preparations beforehand so that at the appointed time, he will be able to usher his people into a kingdom where all these things will be true. And that's what we see with the final three decrees as well, which was the last thing that we saw in our last study. He says, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. At that time, during the kingdom, Righteousness will be the norm, not sin. There will be no more need for prophecy and vision because God will be speaking with us directly. I, I think of that part of it, it's, it's kind of a mind-boggling thing to us, but I think of that when you're away from someone, you're away from your husband and wife or parents or whoever it is that you're close to, what do you do? You might text them, you might email them, Right? You might send messages to them. I still remember back in the days when you would actually write letters to people and send them. I don't think that happens too much anymore. But today, we send these messages to each other. But when we're with that person, do we do the same thing? I mean, some people might, and I know it it gets kind of crazy out there. But for the most part, you're sitting across someone at the dinner table. You're not sending them a text, are you? You're talking to them, right? Because you're right there with them. Well, when we are in the kingdom, God will be right there with us in his holy mountain. We won't have to read scripture to know what God wants to say to us because we will be with God. So at that time, there will be no more need for communication that was given via prophecy, via visions. And at that time, we will be, he will be the center of worship, as he should be. And this is when all things will be as they should be. The creation will be restored to a right relationship with God, where he is the absolute focus of all the glory. And again, you look out the window, that is not happening today. There will be no more following after other gods. There will be no more idols. There will be no more systems where... The world is focused away from God, but at this point in time, the entire world will be set up to worship him. And and that will be a remarkable time. That is what is coming. That's what God is telling Daniel that Israel has to look forward to, and we know that we will be able to enjoy that as well in the kingdom. Now that's where all this is going. Verse 24 was the summary of this, but how do we get there? What has to happen first? Well, Gabriel is presenting the end state there, but now we have to see some of the details. And that's shown to us in the last three verses of the chapter. And what we're going to look at today is the majority of that time frame that God has set forward in the events that take place at the beginning of that time. But first, we need to look at the specifics of the time frame. How long it's going to be, and how do we know how long it's going to be, and and, I, and I'm not going to lie to you this morning, because you're going to find that out anyway, but we're going to get into the weeds a little bit this morning. Um, 
it's going to be one of those kind of lessons. Uh, I think it, but I think it's important for us to be able to get a good grasp on this, to see how it is that we know so many of the things that we know about this prophecy and how it all works together. So to start off, we'll talk about how long this time frame really is. Now, if you've read the text, it tells us right here how long it's going to last, right? And we mentioned it earlier. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed. 70 weeks. Okay, we'll just take that at face value for a minute. 70 weeks. If you multiply that out, you get 490 days, which is right about a year and a third of a year, right? Seems pretty simple, right? 70 weeks. Well, not so fast. We can't quite look at it quite like that. If you're familiar at all with this portion of God's word, you know that it's not quite that simple, and the debate goes on and on about it amongst various groups of Bible scholars. People would say, well, why can't you say it's weeks? Why can't you say it's 490 days? Don't we take the Bible literally? Isn't a week a week? Some people ask that question. Some people say, why wouldn't you look at it that way? Don't we go to the first chapters of Genesis and make it a point to note that a day is a day? It's a 24-hour period. And so here, should we not say that a week is a week? Well, literally, this word does not mean week. Not as we think of a week. Although it's true that it is used in Scripture to refer to seven-day periods. But what the word really means is sevens. It's the Hebrew word shabua, and I won't spell that. I can barely pronounce it. Um, But it's a word that at its simplest means something has been multiplied in sevens. It has been sevened, if you want to use that as a verb. Now, there are those who would say that we have to stay consistent with other places, and we have to use this word in the same way that it's used elsewhere. And in most circumstances, I would agree with that. That, in the, that is the general rule of thumb for interpreting many words in Scripture. But even more importantly is determining the context of any given passage. Even in those other places where the word is used, it's used for weeks of days The only way we know that it's referring to weeks of days is because of the context of the passage that it's in. For example, in Leviticus 12.2, the passage says that a woman who gives birth to a male child will be considered unclean for seven days. That's a form of this word followed by the word for days. You have shabua and days, and I don't know what the word for days is. Then down in verse 5 of the same chapter, it says that if she gives birth to a female child, she is unclean for two weeks, or literally the plural of our word here in Daniel, for weeks or sevens. The point is that the context of that passage makes it clear that if it's seven days in view in verse 2, then it's two sevens of days in verse 5. The book of Ezekiel. Uh, Chapter 45 says this in verse 21, In the first months on the fourteenth day of the month you shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. Seven days, that's our word. Days sevened. So once again, it's clear that it's a week. That's how it's used in that passage. So now, as we look at this passage here in Daniel chapter 9, what does our context show us here? I'm going to submit to you that this is not talking about weeks of days, or even weeks of weeks, or even weeks of months, but what we see here in Daniel is that this is referring to weeks of years. Seventy-sevens of years, that's what this is talking about. Now, how can we say that? First of all, let me point out that this isn't me going out on a limb by myself. Almost all evangelical Bible scholars hold this same view on this passage. And when I use the term almost, um, I'm not aware of any that disagree, but I'll throw out a caveat that maybe there is someone out there that does. But this is really the accepted view amongst all evangelical scholars. Um, And I use the term evangelical. Those are the ones that get it right. I'll just throw it out there. But beyond being in good company, there are definite reasons that weeks of years makes the most sense for this passage, and we'll go over some of those reasons. The first thing that I would point out is just how much is going to be accomplished during this time as we've been looking at this. We looked last time at all the things that, going, that God is going to be doing with Israel during these seven weeks or because of these seven weeks. And just from the common sense point of view, 
there's a lot that has to happen here. That has to be a long period of time to bring these things in. Plus, we have the added benefit, which Daniel didn't have at the time, of being able to see that these things that are presented here are not accomplished in history over the course of a year and a half, or 490 days. But we can't just rely on common sense. We do that in Scripture, and we get ourselves in trouble. When you apply common sense, and you say, well, this... No, we can't rely on our own experience or our own common sense, but fortunately, we don't have to either. There are other reasons we know that this is weeks of years. Second reason... If you think about the circumstances surrounding God giving this to Daniel, and this is where we come into the context. What had Daniel read, had been contemplating and praying about and petitioning God for? The restoration of Israel to the land, back to Jerusalem. For how long? After how long a period of time? He read it in in Jeremiah. Seventy years. Right? He's contemplating this 70-year period of time. So keeping in mind that this entire chapter from verse 1 till now has been one complete fluid context, there has been no break in any of this. What time span has Daniel had fixed in his mind? 70 years. He's been thinking 70 years. Now, here comes God's messenger. The angel Gabriel, and what's the first thing out of his mouth as he gives this important revelation to Daniel? Seventy-sevens have been decreed for your people. What's God telling him here? Basically, he's saying, you're concerned about what's happening after 70 years, Daniel. Well, Daniel, here's what's going to take place over the next 77s of years. Daniel's focused on the little picture that's right there in front of his face, and God is showing him the big picture that lies in front of all of Israel. It's not taking anything away from the previous promise of restoring the people to Jerusalem. That's still going to happen. And in fact, the decree to accomplish that restoration is going to play a significant part in this prophecy as well. So that's still going to happen. But now God is having Daniel see an even bigger picture than just that little, little small piece here. The restoration to the land after 70 years is not a permanent solution. It's not a permanent fix for the nation. It's once again just a return to the never-ending cycle. And remember the cycle in Israel's history. We've talked about that before. They go through a period of blessing and then they sin. And then after they sin, there's a period of judgment, right? God brings something upon them. In this case, it's Babylon. Then after a period of time, they, they go through repentance. They cry out to God for, for forgiveness. God delivers them. And then they have another period of blessing. And the same thing happens in their history over and over and over again. Well, Daniel's repentance and prayer was a part of that cycle. But what did we see last time that was going to be accomplished at the end of these 70 weeks? These 70 weeks of year. The national salvation of Israel. The end of sin, the atonement for iniquity. That's going to be the final turn of that wheel, of that cycle. The cycle will finally be over once these things that Gabriel is presenting here are accomplished. And so that's what's being presented here. And it's going to take 70 weeks of years, 490 years to accomplish this, not just the 70 years that Daniel was focused on, that he had in mind after reading Jeremiah. The third reason we know that this is weeks of years is that a year week was not something that was new to Israel. This wasn't a new concept. They were familiar with the concept of seven-year periods, it's one of the things that got them into trouble, uh, that the trouble that they're in here during Daniel's days. Now, to see this, turn with me for a minute over to the book of Leviticus, where the concept is demonstrated to the nation. Leviticus chapter 25. We'll start in Leviticus 25, verse 1. <clears throat> 
It says in Leviticus 25.1, The Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crops. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. So you see here, there was a Sabbath year concept. Just as they're going into the land, there's this Sabbath year. There's six years of working the land, and then they're supposed to take a year off. No work done on the land. That was the seven-year plan. Look down at verse 8. It says, You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that they have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. Now he goes on to say that the following year was to be the Jubilee year, a time when debts were forgiven. The land was, land was given back to its original owners. But the point that I want you to see here is the grouping of these years. It was marked off as the number of Sabbaths, seven times seven years. Grouping by the number of seven-year periods was not new. In fact, you go way back into the very beginning of Israel's history, and you see God presenting this to them. They were supposed to be thinking this way. They were supposed to be thinking of the land and being in the land in these seven-year periods. So Israel was called to give the land a Sabbath rest, and it should have been something that was very familiar to them. So this concept of weeks of years is not something that's out of the ordinary. It's not new to Jewish thinking. God had already established that unit of time as something very important in their, in their existence. But unfortunately, there was a problem with it. And what was the problem? Sin. It always comes back to sin, right? They didn't keep the Sabbath year. They had a hard time with that. You tell somebody, well, you want me to take one day a week off? Okay, I can manage that, right? Give me a week a day, uh, give me a day a week off. Who doesn't want a day a week off, right? But now you're being told to not plant or harvest crops for an entire year? Hmm, that's a little harder. How can I just not do anything with my land for an entire year? And so that brings us to our fourth point. The 70 weeks of years corresponds to another 70 weeks of years in their history. Turn with me over to the final chapter of the book of 2 Chronicles, um, chapter 36. And we've been here before in our study. It's been a while back, so I don't expect you to remember it. But here we see some more insight into the reason for their captivity, their current situation. And specifically, we see the reason for the length of their captivity, right? Why is, why is Daniel reading in Jeremiah about 70 years? Why was 70 years chosen? Why did he determine that that's how long the captivity would be? Well, we see it in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. In this chapter, we see the final phase of the captivity. And you'll remember that the exile was done in three phases. So look at verse 20 of 2 Chronicles 36. And it says, and those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Now, right here, this is talking about the king of Babylon. They served the king of Babylon until when? Until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, right? What year is Daniel receiving this revelation that we're talking about in chapter 9? The first year of the king of Persia. You see God's timing at work here. Go on in verse 21. It says, To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. And so you see what's going on here. The Lord chose 70 years for a specific reason. That was the number of Sabbath years that the people had violated. In their 800-year or so existence, how many years would that have covered? I'm asking people, we're going to do math today, okay? So I just want everybody to be, be aware of that. Now here's the million-dollar question. 
How many years did that cover? That's 490 years. 70 Sabbaths, end of every seventh year, 70 times 7 equals 490. Well, isn't that interesting? Over the last 70 years, God has kept the land of Israel at rest, giving it the rest it should have had for all of those Sabbath years. But now, God is telling Daniel something else also. Israel violated the last 490 years prior to the captivity. Now, I'm going to take 70 more weeks of years, which is how many years? 490, thank you. And bring all this to an end, to accomplish all that I want to accomplish within them. That's what God is revealing to Daniel here. That all fits within the context of what we're seeing here. It fits within Daniel's understanding of events, and it fits with the time frame of the things that we have presented to us here as well. Daniel's being schooled. He's being given given a broader picture of things. Daniel, you're concerned about this 70-year time period, the time when the land is going to get its rest and the people are going to be restored to the way that they have always been restored. They've been disciplined, and now they're on the verge of coming back. But now, Daniel, I'm going to show you the next 70 weeks of years when I am going to bring about a permanent restoration in a time when all things will not just be made okay again, brought back to the way that they've always been, but they will be made perfect on the entire earth. And that's what is being revealed to Daniel. So these are not merely weeks, as we think of weeks, they are weeks of years, and we'll see now how these weeks of years play out. And I I don't know about you, I hope you find this, I find this to be truly fascinating stuff, seeing how perfect and exact all this is as God lays all of this out. Those that take these numbers and say that they represent nothing but generic time periods and eons of time or even indeterminate amounts of time, saying that you can't even tell how long this time period will be, they aren't recognizing the exacting plan of God in all of this. I think this is truly amazing to see how this all works out. Now, before we move on, we have to realize something. And this is where I mentioned the weeds before. You thought we were in the weeds there, but no, no. Now we're getting into the weeds. This may seem a little bit like nitpicking, but it's really not, okay? And we need to understand something. How long is a year? We all know that a year is 365.2422 days, right? Everybody, Everybody knows that. However, that's not how long a biblical year was. We need to keep in mind because it's easy to overlook this, that to the Jews and to Daniel, a year was not the same amount of time as it is to us today. The nation of Israel understood a year to be 360 days, not 365, 360 days. And we understand it differently because we use a different calendar and we're not going to go into all that. But we have a different calendar than what they used. But in Israel and in the Bible, a year was 360 days. And this is consistent in Scripture from end to end. And to see this, I want to look back at just a few verses. We'll be at different passages. I should have warned you that earlier. We've already been to a few. But turn back with me to the book of Genesis, to chapter 7, where we're talking about the flood on the earth. I just want to look at three verses, not in order just to simplify this as much as possible. And it's going to be easy to get lost in details, so bear with me. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on the flood, but we all remember that God sent a flood in Noah's time that covered the entire earth, right? Look at verse 11 of Genesis chapter 7. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Okay? So note the timing here. This is that the water came on the second month, the 17th day of the month, right? So 217. I don't know how, what the name of the month was, but 217. Okay, now look at down at verse 24. Verse 24 says, And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. That's a pretty round number, right? 150. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. So we have 150 days from the 17th day of the second month. Now in verse, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8, we have the flood coming to an end. Look with me at verse 3 of chapter 8. 
And the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. So here we have the end of 150 days. And what happened then? Well, when was that? Look at verse 4. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. So where are we now? We're in the 17th day of the seventh month. So what we, before we were on 217, and now we're on 717, and that was exactly 150 days. So how many months is that? It's five months, right? How many days are in each month? 30 days in each month. The biblical month is 30 days. The Jews still had a 12-month year, but their months were exactly 30 days. Okay, so that's the beginning. Now, we see that at the very beginning of Scripture. Now, turn with me over to the book of Revelation. We had it at the beginning of the Bible. Now we're going to see that this holds true even at the end of the Bible, one extreme to the other. And we'll go to Revelation chapter 12. And once again here, just looking at numbers. I'm looking at the numbers here. I'm going to ask you to bear with me. In Revelation chapter 12, we have a reference to the length of time that the nation of Israel is going to be persecuted in the tribulation. Look at verse 6 of Revelation chapter 12. It says, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be nourished for 1,260 days. The woman is Israel. And the length of time is 1,260 days. Okay, now skip ahead one chapter to chapter 13. We see the length of time given to the Antichrist to persecute Israel, and that's in verse 5 of Revelation 13. It says, And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. So now we have 42 months, not quite as nice round of a number, But how long is 42 months? It's three and a half years, right? If you take 12 plus 12 plus 12 plus 6, you come to 42. I know. I'll try to do all the math for everybody. I'm not saying you can't do math, but I know a lot of people cringe at math, so I'll I'll try to do the math for you. So the 1,260 days in chapter 12 is the same time period as the 42 months in chapter 13. And this equates out to 30 days in a month. If you divide 1260 by 30, you get 42. And, that's a th- and those are 360-day years. See, I know now why I was a math major in college. I never really knew why I was a math major in college, never really did anything with it, but then I come to things like this and I realize this is why God had me be a math major, so I can look and see this stuff and actually appreciate it. So, what's that? Andy, you're a nerd. Yeah, and a nerd, yes, yes. (laughs) All of that that we went through just to show how long a year is in the Bible, and you might be thinking, well, who cares? Why, Why do we care about all this? Well, The answer is we're going to care in a little bit when we see some of these calculations come through and the length of time of all this, because this was really the easy part. So we just need to keep in mind that a biblical year is 360 days, not 365.2422 as we think of years. We need to keep in mind that um, as we continue through to see what Daniel has or what Gabriel has for Daniel here. Now let's move on to verse 25. Of Daniel. I know it's taken us a long time to get there, but let's look at verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now look at what Daniel tells him right away. And this is very important, this very first phrase here. You are to know and discern. There is a sense of importance in what Gabriel is telling Daniel here. You are supposed to understand this, Daniel. And guess what? That means we're supposed to understand this as well. This wasn't given just so that we can play around with numbers. It was given so that we might know and discern, so that we might be able to thoroughly understand what is being presented here. And I would submit to you that that is entirely possible. And that's why we are studying this as we're studying it, in order to understand what God intends for us to understand here. There are two things presented here. 
He says, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and the coming of Messiah the Prince. We had before the six overall results that will come out of this time period. Now we're told two additional details that will occur during this time period and actually are the bookends of this time period, or at least part of the time period. In order to accomplish these two things, the 70 weeks are further divided into two other additional units. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, if you're, if you're quick with your calculations, you know that 7 plus 62 doesn't add up to 70. It adds up to 69, right? But fear not, a little later on, we'll look at that remaining week, and it will be a very important week, so it gets its own consideration. But for now, we need to focus on the seven-week period and the 62-week period. So we have a period of 49 prophetical or biblical years, the seven-week period, and another period of 434 prophetical years, the 62-week period. Yeah, 62-week period. Now, these time periods are very important because of what they coincide with. They lay out the map of these events and when they occur. But you know what the problem is with being given a map and finding your way on a map? You have to know where you are in relationship to the map, right? If you're out in the middle of the woods and you say, oh, I found a map, it doesn't do you much good unless you know exactly where your starting point is, right? Or you can determine your starting point. So here, we don't have a map, but we have a timeline. And, but when does or did this timeline start? And that's the first question that we have to answer. So the clock didn't start ticking right away. Gabriel is not telling Daniel that this will be accomplished 490 years from today. He's not saying, okay, as soon as I'm done talking, Daniel, then in 490 years, we're done. That's not what he's saying. No, he tells him when it will start and when it will end. What does he say? It says, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. These are the bookends of the first 69 of these 70 weeks. The seven weeks and the 62 weeks for the 438 prophet- 83, 483 prophetical years. What's that? That was good quick math. Thank you. Well, I had it written down. I just knew I read it wrong. <laughs> I wasn't doing that calculation up here. There will be a decree issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That is what starts the clock. And when Messiah the Prince comes, the clock will stop. And at a point in the middle, somewhere, well, not really the middle, but somewhere in, there, in between there, there will be a waypoint or a checkpoint for another event at the seven-week point. So we'll go seven weeks, and then we'll go 62 weeks. That's what he's saying. So all we need to figure out is... When was the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem? Unfortunately, even this is contested because there were four possible decrees that people point to to say, well, it might have been this, it might have been that. Cyrus made a decree in Ezra chapter 1 around 536 BC, and this is the decree that many say has to be the correct one because of Isaiah 44, verses 24 to 28, where the prophet Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus would make a decree such as this. However, Cyrus's decree only pertained to the temple in Jerusalem, not the entire city. Why do we care? Why does that matter? Look at the last part of verse 25. He says at the very end of the, of the verse, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. This indicates complete rebuilding of the city inside and out. And in actuality, the rebuilding of the temple isn't even in view here. Gabriel's not even talking about the temple. It's the city that's the main focus. It will be built with plaza, it says. This would be the inner court of the city inside the walls. That's a very important aspect to it. And with moat or outside of the city, indicating fortifications are in place. There wouldn't be much point in building a moat around a city that isn't further protected by a wall. This shows that the city will be built with walls in place. The completion of the restoration of the city of Jerusalem and not just a part of it. So Cyrus's decree in Ezra 1 doesn't fulfill this here, but besides Cyrus's, Cyrus's decree isn't finished. It doesn't get fully carried out. 
Then over in Ezra chapter 6, another, another ruler by the name of Darius the Persian restarts the decree, issues one of his own for the temple to be rebuilt, and then the rebuilding phase is finished. But no one really consider, seriously considers this to be the, the, the decree in view. Then in Ezra 7, in about 458 B.C., we have Artaxerxes issuing a decree to finish the temple with gold and silver vessels, and he provides offerings to be able to start up the sacrifices. But once again, we have the same problem. This only pertains to the temple, not the city. But then we go to the book of Nehemiah. And we will go to the book of Nehemiah. So turn over to Nehemiah chapter 1. And we'll see that in 444 B.C., Artaxerxes issues another decree, and this one has all of the right elements to it. So look with me at Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Hakaliah, Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital. Remember Susa? Susa was the city where in, back in chapter 7. Okay. If you remember, look back in chapter 7. It was there. That Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So what's the concern here? It's not concern for the temple. These people aren't coming saying, oh, we're concerned about the condition of the temple. But these men are concerned because the city has not been rebuilt. It still lies in disrepair. It still shows the signs of destruction. And so in the rest of the chapter, Nehemiah here pulls a Daniel. He weeps and he mourns and he petitions God for the restoration of the city. Now turn over to chapter 2. Look at verse 1 there. It says, and it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, just note the time here. Artaxerxes is one of those kings on whom we know a lot of information. And we know that he became king sometime in 465 B.C. And now we are in his 20th year. And if you, if you map that out, we come down to about 444 B.C., which is now... Um, which is how we know the date of this decree. So Nehemiah goes on. It says that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let the letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Here it is. For the sovereignty of God, Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer, was allowed to go back with the king's resources to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. That is the only decree that fulfills the requirement of rebuilding Jerusalem with plaza and moat, and that occurred in 444 B.C. Is everybody with me? Hopefully. Taking notes. I don't know if maybe he's taking notes. So now from that time, we have the two divisions that we have to look at, the seven weeks and the 62 weeks. From 444 B.C., seven weeks or 49 years from that date takes us to sometime in 395 B.C. And that's the year in which scholars say that the city was finally completed. Nehemiah may not have been around for that entire period of time, but it was supposedly completed in that year. So there's our 49 or our seven weeks. 
It took 49 years for the city to be cleaned up from its previous destruction and made into a thriving city, complete with defenses again. You note that the text in Daniel says, even in times of distress, and during this entire period, there were tremendous difficulties in getting the city rebuilt. So it's pretty clear that this time is the time frame that's in view here, and that is the significance of the 49 years and why it was split out or for into this first seven weeks of this prophecy. Now, another thing to note is that this is also right about the time when the Old Testament canon was closed. And for the next 400 and some years, there was really no more revelation given. So that takes care of the seven weeks. But now, what about the 62 weeks? Well, this is a continuation. It's 62 weeks after the seven weeks. So really, we're talking about 69 weeks, or 483 years from the time of the decree of Artaxerxes until what? It's the other bookend, until Messiah the Prince, it says in verse 25. So we have 483 years from the decree until the Messiah. Now, what does that mean? Until what part of Messiah's life? Some say it's Messiah's birth. Some say it's his first public appearance at his baptism. Others say it's his entrance to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Which is it? Well, the wording here gives us an indication. The Hebrew words for Messiah the Prince mean the anointed ruler. This is a kingly designation. A kingly presentation is in view here. He is not presented as king at his birth. He was born in a barn. He was not presented as king as his baptism. As, at his baptism, he was presented to God, not to men. But he was presented as king at the triumphal entry. As we entered, as, as we entered the city of Jerusalem in the week prior to his crucifixion, this is seen in all four Gospels. Matthew 21.5 says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Mark 11, 9 and 10 says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Luke 19, 38 says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And John 12, 15 says, Behold, your king is coming. All of these are references from The same event, the entry of Jesus the Messiah into the holy city of Jerusalem. So from the decree of Artaxerxes to this event, it's 483 prophetic years. Remember, prophetic year, 360 days. Does that add up? Can we be that precise? Well, there are two scholars that have done extensive work in figuring this out. One was by the name of Sir Robert Anderson in the late 19th century. He was the first person to come up with the calculations that show how the numbers work. He laid a lot of groundwork. And then in the mid-70s, a man by the name of Dr. Harold Honer of Dallas Theological Seminary made some adjustments to the first calculations. But guess what they found? By the way, this is the reason why we went through the exercise earlier determining how long a biblical prophetic year is as opposed to our standard year. But if you multiply out, again, I'll do the math for you. If you multiply out 483 years by 360 days, a prophetic year, you get 173,880 days. The decree of Artaxerxes was calculated as being around the first day of the Jewish month of Nisan in 444 B.C. That day corresponds to March 5th, 444 B.C which is the date that we figure on our modern, our modern calendar. Then if you go ahead 173,880 days in time, that is the equivalent of 476 standard years, or years as we know them, the 365.2422, plus an additional 25 days, you arrive at March 30, 33 A.D. This date corresponds to the beginning of the week leading up to Christ's crucifixion. The numbers are that precise. This is the timing of the triumphal entry of the king into Jerusalem. 
Now, there are those that will try to discredit the calculations and make them come out to be different dates, and they'll choose different starting points. But if you take the right decree and the right calculations of the prophetic years, you come out with some pretty impressive dates for this all to occur. The 483 years presented to Daniel, starting from the exact day when the decree went forth to rebuild Jerusalem, they lead right up to when the king, Messiah the prince, would enter the city of Jerusalem. That is the first part of what Gabriel is revealing to Daniel here. That is the first 69 weeks of years that will lead the nation to this appointed time. But as we know, things take a little bit of a turn at that point. Not, not a turn in God's plans, but a turn for the nation, because the nation rejects their Messiah. And we'll look at that when we get to our next lesson. But we can see here, and one of the reasons I feel it's necessary for us to see this detail and know how this all works out is to see that Israel really had no excuse. When Christ came as their Messiah, they had no reason to reject him. If they had only listened to the prophets, in this case Daniel, yet once again they failed to listen to the prophets. They, they failed to to know and discern what Gabriel had told him. They could have known the exact day. They should have been prepared for it, but they weren't. And what a tragedy for those living in that time. But as we know, their loss was our game. As, as salvation came to the Jews, but they rejected it, so it came to whom? It came to the Gentiles. We have been grafted into God's plan, into the vine that some of them have been cut off from, And so during this time, during this church age, we are able to take advantage of their loss. Praise God for his marvelous and sovereign plan. So we arrive at the end of the 62nd week, which is really the end of the 69 weeks, right? We're almost out of weeks, but like I said, that last week is a doozy, so we'll get to look at that um, in the future. So let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you and give you praise for your plans for your, uh, the way that, that your prophecies work out, Lord, and, and just the truth of your word. We thank you so much that we can study things like this, Lord. We can get into some of these details and, and just see how your plans work out. We thank you, Lord, so much for just everything that you've given us. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the, the, the gift of salvation, first and foremost, Lord. And we know that that is, is key. That is vital for our very existence, Lord, and we pray that that would be something that we are sharing with as many people as we possibly can. We thank you, Lord, so much for uh, just all you do for us each and every day. We thank you, Lord, for our time here once again. We pray that you'd be with us in the next hour as we worship you, as we praise you, Lord, as we, uh, as we hear your word once again, and we just pray that that would be a time that would bring glory and honor to you. And Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.